We've been working our way through 1 Kings for the last month or so. Uh, we spent uh, four weeks looking at the life of King Solomon, the reign of King Solomon, coming to, to power, you know, setting up his throne, building the temple and the palace, his wealth, his wisdom. Last week we saw the transition of power from uh, Solomon to his son Rehoboam, and then we saw the kingdom kind of quickly fall into turmoil as another guy, Jeroboam, uh, kind of splintered off, and there's the northern tribes uh, in Israel, ten tribes in the north kind of uh, made their own nation of Israel, and uh, the two tribes in the south um, yeah, stayed as, as Judah. Judah and, and Benjamin stayed together. So you've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, this Sunday we're going to track through a few generations uh, after, uh, after Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And we're going we're gonna to zoom in and on the prophet Elijah in chapter 17. And then Elijah and uh, Ahab are going to be kind of central characters for a few chapters. We're going to look at them next week. And then the following week, we're going to look at the rest of uh, King Ahab's life. And that'll be it. Two more sermons total uh, in the book of First Kings. So today we're going to look at uh, everyone from Rehoboam and Jeroboam up until uh, the introduction of Elijah. And we're going to work through those in the next few minutes. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, we're going to get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, the, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so Jesus, we just pray, we ask that you would take your word that endures forever and that you would uh, plant it deep in our hearts this morning. Help us to listen, help us to hear, help us to receive, and help us to be shaped by your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so chapters 15 and 16, uh, we're just going to do a quick uh, water ski over it. We're not going to read every every word, but we're going to kind of get, get the gist of it. So it starts with um, Rehoboam's son, King Abijam, who uh, rules in Judah. We see that in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Rehoboam, if you'll remember, was a bad king. He worshipped idols. He led the people of God into the worship of idols. Abijam is a chip off the old block. He does exactly like his dad did, worships idols, uh, incites God's anger. However, uh, it says that God was gracious with him, uh, not on the basis of his, you know, because he was sinful and he provoked God's anger, but it says God was gracious because of King David, his uh, grandfather, and so, or his great-grand, wait, yeah, uh, there's Rehoboam, Solomon, yeah, so his great-grandfather. So, um, uh, Abijam reigns for three years. In verse 9, we meet uh, his son Asa. Asa was a good king. He wasn't like his father Abijam. He wasn't like his grandfather Rehoboam. He was like David. He gets rid of all of the idols in the land. He gets rid of all of the prostitutes uh, in in the land. His gra- his own grandmother was like one of the you know like uh, stronger influences of kind of bringing idol worship into the gra- into the land. So he fired her. His own grandmother. He's like you're not you're no longer formally the king's grandmother anymore. You're just a you're my grandmother technically, but you're not like you don't get that position. And so he fires her, removes her from the royal court, and Asa walks with God uh, for 41 years as the king of, of Judah. So that's kind of what we see in the, north, the southern tribes of Judah. We've got Abijam and then Asa. The next five kings that we see are all going to be in uh, Israel up north, and they're all going to come one after the other during the reign of King Asa down in Judah. And so the first one, uh, it will, yeah, spoiler alert, they're all bad. So uh, Judah... Some good, some mostly bad in Judah. Some of them, like Asa, were good. Um, but in, in uh, Israel up north, they're pretty much all bad. So the first one is Nadab. We see him in verse 25. Um, he yeah, doesn't walk with God. He worships idols. He reigns for two years before he is uh, killed by a guy named Basha. Or Basha. And so uh, Basha comes in and kills Nadab, and then Basha kills Nadab's whole entire family. Anyone who was remotely uh, related to King Jeroboam, uh, is Basha kills him to kind of make sure that no one can kind of make a, you know angle for his, his throne, which is exactly what uh, the prophet said would happen 
to Jeroboam's household in chapter 14. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. So Basha takes over as king uh, in chapter 15, verse 33. He's bad too. So he reigns for 24 years. Along the way, he receives a prophecy from a prophet that's very similar to the one that he was the fulfillment of. So someone came to Jeroboam and said, uh, your kingdom is going to be ripped from you. Your household is going to be decimated. Everyone in your household is going to die. And then Basha was the one. That's how you can remember Basha. He bashed him, right? Like, Basha was the one who came in and like killed all of the people for thus fulfilling the prophecy that was told to Jeroboam. Well, Basha gets a similar prophecy that says everyone in your household is going to, is going to die. Um, and that is, that's going to happen one generation removed as, as well. So Basha uh, reigns for 24 years. Uh, he dies and hands the kingdom over to his son, Ela, uh, which takes over in chapter 16, verse 8. And Elah is the guy that the prophecy against Basha comes uh, due for, comes true on. Elah only reigns, I think, for two years. And at one point, he's getting drunk. And the commander of his army comes in. You know, he's plastered, easy pickings. So he kills Elah uh, and then kills everyone in Elah, uh, which was Basha's family. So uh, the second time in just a few kind of quick successions of the throne and the entire royal court, the entire royal family has been, been killed. And so the guy who killed Basha's family, the guy who killed Elah and Basha's family was a guy named Zimri, and we meet him in chapter 16, verse 15. Now, if you thought that Elah had a short reign, just two years, um, before he was killed by his commander, uh, Zimri has an even shorter reign seven days. So Zimri uh, kills Ayla, who's getting drunk, and he says, I'm going to kill you and start a new regime, start a new kingdom. Here we go. He kills him. And as soon as everyone hears that Zimri has killed Ayla, everyone's like, dude, we don't even like Zimri. So why would we, like, just because he killed the king doesn't mean that he has to be our king. And so everyone says, we don't want uh, Zimri to be the king. We would rather have this other guy named Omri to be the king. And so as soon as Zimri, seven days in, hears that everyone prefers Omri to him and that nobody wants to follow him as king, he runs away. He, I mean, you can read it, right? In, in uh, you know, verses 17 and following, he goes into a building. He pours lighter fluid around it, sets the building on fire. The building burns up, collapses on top of him, and he kills himself and, and dies. So seven days after he becomes king, he uh, kills himself in that way, leaving Omri to be the presumptive king. Now you'd think, at this point, you're like, ah, Israel likes Omri. Omri's their guy. They chose Omri over Zimri. Zimri was so, uh, it was so painfully obvious that Israel wanted to follow Omri that Zimri killed himself because he knew that they'll never follow me. So now we probably have unity. Everyone is going to be consolidated all behind Omri, right? Wrong. Because Omri, uh, he is there, and then instead of everyone saying, oh good, Zimri's dead, we want to follow Omri, the entire nation is divided. Half of them want Omri to be their king, which is convenient because, uh, because Zimri is out of the picture. But another half of them want this other guy named Tibni to be king. And so this is probably in uh, verses yeah, 21 to 28. So they're saying, we want to follow Omri, we want to follow Tibni. They're kind of fighting. Um, and the Omri supporters overcome the Tibni supporters. And so Omri is the king. Uh, and then he reigns for 12 years, and then he hands the throne over to his son, uh, who is even worse than him, even worse than everyone that has come uh, up before, up until now. He hands the, the reins over to King Ahab. We probably have all heard of King Ahab. Maybe you haven't, but if you've heard or read the book Moby Dick, then you've probably heard of uh, Ahab, Captain Ahab in that book, which was named after this Ahab. Captain Ahab was a mean he wanted to, you know, he, he had a grudge against a whale, right? Like, you've got to be pretty, you've got to be cranky and petty to, like, hold a grudge against an, a, a non-human object. But that's, that's Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, and he was named after King Ahab, who was a bad guy. He takes over in chapter 16, verse 29, reigns for 22 years. He's pretty much the king for the rest of the book, one of the worst kings they have. Worships idols, uh, erects statues of idols. He marries a foreign wife named Jezebel who encourages him to worship idols even more and to institutionalize the worship of idols even more. And that's pretty much the state of the union when we get to 1 Kings 17. Israel is, is uh, you know, falling 
fast. It, it is, you know, faithless king after faithless king after faithless king. Sin is getting more and more entrenched. The worship of idols is becoming more and more normalized. And that's kind of where we're at. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, we're going to pick it up and read uh, verse by verse the, the chapter 17 because the narrative slows down a little bit. It slows down and we kind of meet some characters and we see some character development and things like that a little bit uh, a little bit more. So, in chapter 17, verse 1, we meet Elijah, quite, possi- quite possibly the uh, most famous prophet in the Bible. And we're going to see kind of his, uh, what he does for the next few, few chapters here. So we'll start in verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in, Gale- in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I think we have a map up here, Jesse. We can kind of just leave that that up here because we're going to see a few different mentions. They might not even be on the map. But um, So uh, Elijah is from Tishbe in Gilead, which is just uh, east of the Jordan River. You can see the Jordan River kind of goes from the Dead Sea straight up to the Sea of Galilee. And that kind of marks the eastern border, uh, more or less, of the, the nation of Israel. And so uh, Tishbe was just on the, uh, on the eastern side of that, probably halfway between uh, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So, so that's where Elijah is, that's where he lives. The word of the Lord comes to him and he says, Go tell Ahab that it's not going to rain for years. And go to specifically tell Ahab, it's not going to rain until I, Elijah, say so. Like, I'm the, you have to come ask me, and I am going to be the one who says if it rains or not. Now, unless you're a farmer, you probably, like, you probably have a different relationship with rain than the people in ancient Israel had. Even if you are a farmer, you probably have a different relationship with rain than the people in ancient Israel had, because we just take water much more for granted now than people in ancient Israel did. Um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know the last time it rained, right? In my mind, like, rain in my brain is, is kind of associated with I can't go outside, I'm stuck inside, what a bummer, that kind of thing. It has nothing, to, like, you know, because water, you have a faucet in your house, shower, dishwasher, washing machine, water on, we think of water today kind of like we think of air. Like, you need it, You'll die without it, but you've got it, right? Let's, you know, I need it, sure, but I've got it, and I've got it. I'll never not have it, so it's not really a big deal. Water in the ancient world was more like food than it was like air, right? You need it, and you'll die without it, and it's by no means guaranteed that you have it. You have to go get it. You have to hope that you have it, because if you find yourself without it, that's going to be a big, uh, a, a big problem. And so when Elijah comes to Ahab and says, there's a drought coming. It's not going to rain anymore until I, you know, until I say it's going to rain. It, the best analogy in today's terms would not be, okay, there's a drought coming. The best analogy would be that in your house, the, your, the water's shut off in your house. So you've got no water, no shower, no ability to, to wash things, drink things. But not only that, because water and, and everything that came from water was such so kind of woven it was central to the fabric of the society so a drought then would the equivalent today would be not only does your water in your house stop working but also your credit card stop working uh you know all, your internet stops working so you can't really get anything right you you're pretty much at the mercy of what you have right now and you just have to hope that what you have will last you through until the the drought ends until it starts to to rain again and if it doesn't then you'll you'll die if, if, if you don't uh, happen to have enough supplies and, and kind of fresh water on hand to last through the, the drought, you'll die of dehydration or you'll die of starvation. And so when Elijah goes to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain, it's not going to rain until I say so, he's, he's kind of claiming on behalf of God, he's claiming that God, it, like, God is, the, God is the king of your life. God is going to be the one who either gives you what you need to live or with, like, withholds what you need to live. Every religion in the ancient world was 
it was all based around rain. Rain was like what they worshipped gods for. But right, every, every civilization would just say, here's our God, this is the God that we worship, and uh, if we make him happy, and if we entertain him, and if we appease him, and if we give him extravagant gifts, then he'll respond by giving us rain, we can eat, we can drink, we can live. And so when Elijah says, there's no more rain until I say so, he's saying, every God that everyone is worshipping around here, that's not the true God of heaven, I'm about to show you how worthless and how pathetic and how weak he is compared to the one true God. And the way that I'm going to prove to you that your God that you're worshiping is nothing compared to the true God that I worship is that my true God and I are, are going to watch you die. Like we're going, to, we're going to have this drought that will literally kill you. So... You know, you're going to bury your kids and then you're going to die yourself and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. That's how powerful my God is. So, so think carefully when you think about going up against my God. Think carefully when you uh, consider worshiping some other God instead of my God because it's literally life and death that we, are, that we are dealing with here. So this is a big, strong, scary powerful kind of line in the sand that Elijah is drawing with King Ahab. He's saying, your gods are nothing. My God is the only God that there, that there is. So that's, that's the state of, that's, that's what's happening in Israel now. We have a bad king after bad king after bad king. Then we have a drought where Elijah is basically saying, God is God. No other God is God. Let's see how this plan, pans out. And then God called, in verse 2, God calls Elijah to uh, kind of go into his, you know, like, go into a little holding pattern here while we kind of let this run its course. He says, uh, And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, as I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So, right, hang out, let this drought kind of weaken the will and the self assurance and the self-confidence of Ahab and the people that are around him. In the meantime, I'll provide for you. He says, you'll, you'll drink from the, from the brook. I've commanded ravens there to feed you. Verse 5, so he did. He goes, he goes to the brook, and ravens brought him meat and bread in the morning, and they brought him bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the, from the brook. And so this, presumably, this is like Elijah's gig for a long time. He just lives by a brook and drinks from it and wild animals bring him food that they made or they took from someone else that made it. I don't know. Uh, the supernatural kind of miracle, they bring him food and he stays there for, uh, presumably for years. Luke 4 seems to, you know, give us an idea that this drought goes on for years um, at a time. And it says, verse 7, after the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land, the word of the Lord came to him, and said, Arise, and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah is in the, the brook Kerith, which is, again, east of Jordan, probably, probably near where it says Penuel, Mahanaim, right in there. And he goes to Zarephath, which I, I should have picked a different map, because Zarephath is way north. It's uh, north of Tyre. So that, that it, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but it's even north of where Tyre is. It's probably just off the map a little bit. So, so Elijah has to go all the way from Tishbe and Gilead all the way up to Zarephath, which is north. It's outside of the, the bounds of, of Israel entirely. And God calls him to go, to go there. Which kind of raises the question, like why does Elijah have to go that far to get food and water? And there's all kinds of cities, all kinds of, you know, little fortified places that he could go. Maybe someone there has food or water that God could use to miraculously provide for Elijah. Why does he have to go all the way outside of Israel, all the way up to uh, Zarephath? Right? For, for, for almost everything that God sets out to accomplish, there's often a different way to go about it. There's often a way that seems better for us, a way that seems more convenient for us. It seems easier for us. And so part of what it means to walk with God as a believer is not just, it's, it's that we trust God to, to, you know, 
do what God wants us to do, but also to do it the way that God has instructed us to do it, even when it seems ridiculous, right? Traveling dozens and dozens of miles outside of the nation of Israel probably seemed a little bit goofy, a little bit unnecessary to Elijah, and yet that's what God often calls us to do, is he calls us to do things in ways that don't make sense to us or don't feel like they are the best and most convenient way for us to... I mean, even, even just thinking about personal growth and personal development as, as believers, right? If God wants you to become more holy, more godly, more wise, if God wants you to become stronger in your faith, or if he wants you to become more Christ-like... I can think of a million ways for that to happen in our lives that seem to be easier than the ways that God typically orchestrates and engineers for those things to, to happen. If you, want to, if you want to grow to be more humble, chances are you will have to be humbled, which is unpleasant and difficult. It involves discipline and pain and, and time. If you want to become more patient... Chances are you're going to have to uh, walk through scenarios and circumstances that try your patience, that are un- unpleasant. If you want to grow uh, as, as a believer, chances are it's going to involve discipline, it's going to involve sacrifice, and, and you know, it's very easy to think, God, why don't you make this thing that you want to happen, why don't you make it happen in a way that's easier or more convenient or less costly for me? And God, God gives commands, but God also intends for those commands to be followed in a way that often seem counterintuitive, often seem difficult, often seem not like the most efficient way. But part of what it means to follow God is that we trust him, and we trust that he knows better than we do. So God says, Elijah, leave Tishbe, go up to Zarephath. Verse 10, so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. So Elijah just made this big long trip, and he calls out to her and says, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Remember, we, it's, we've been, we're deep into the drought now. Again, uh, several years, long enough for the brook that uh, Elijah was drinking from to dry up, uh, long enough for years and years to go by. And he goes and he says, Hey, bring me some water that I may drink. This is a big, uh, this is a big ask. Verse 11, and she, uh, and as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread that is in your hand. So as if it wasn't uh, big enough of an ask already to ask her for water in the midst of a drought when water is in short supply. Now he says, not just water, but also food. I want you to bring me uh, some of, of that. And apparently that is kind of where she, you know, is no longer willing to, to go along without at least objecting and asking some additional you know, clarifying questions. She says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son so that we can eat it and then die. So, I get that you want water. I'm happy to give you some water. Presumably I have enough water that I can at least, you know, I'm probably not going to die for, from lack of water, but we're out of food. And so asking me for food is a big ask. In fact, this is all that I have. This is the last of the food that I have. My intention was to make this food, and then I don't know where we're going to get any more food from. I don't have any way of getting any more. And my, my expectation is that we will starve to death before we get any more food beyond what we what we have here. So tell me again, Elijah, right? Like, just, just so that I can make sure that I'm hearing you correctly, like you want me to give this food that I have to, you're a grown man, I'm a woman, this is a child, you want to take food out of a widow's mouth, food out of a child's mouth so that you can, can eat it. Is that what you're asking me to, to do? Verse 13. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do exactly as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself. And for, so, so feed me first, give me the first portion of the food that you have, and then you eat after I eat. 
For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Gee, great. Thanks, Elijah. I'm glad that the God of Israel said that. We're not in Israel. We're in another country. I've never heard of the God of Israel. I have no reason to think that your God is any more powerful than my God. So what you're asking is a big ask. It's, it's scary. It's li- you're literally asking me to... I'm already at death's door. And you're asking me to take what little I have that's going to extend my life a few short hours or maybe a day or two. And you're asking me to give that to you. Verse 15. She went and did as Elijah said. Right? This ridiculous, crazy, dangerous, life-threateningly dangerous request that he makes of her. And she says, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm happy to, to do it. Right? Uh, I, I, I don't know who the God of Israel is, but I know that the gods of this area are terrible. Because they're not giving us the rain that we need. So let's try, let, let's see if the God of Israel is better than them because I'm pretty sure they can't be uh, any worse. So she went and did as Elijah said. And she, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by Elijah. So it's a remarkable request, this huge ask, and God provides because she trusts in God, right? right? God, God had gone ahead of Elijah and told her to feed him back in chapter 17, verse 9. It's that God tells Elijah, I've already told her to do this. So she knew she was supposed to. By the time verse 14 comes around, Elijah assures her that if she does do this crazy, ridiculous thing, then God will provide for her through a supernatural miracle. And even still... Based on all, like, even still, with all of the assurances that she's been given, it still is a really big ask. And it still is perfectly reasonable for her to say no. Most people would say no. Most people would say, you're a man, I'm a woman, I have a child, we eat first. Women and children first, right? The Titanic, right? Like, you, you're, we're not going to feed you before we eat ourselves. What, you're asking us to commit suicide, and we're not going to, to do it. And yet, granted, uh, Elijah, I hear you. I hear you telling me that if we feed you first, then more food will miraculously appear for us. That's awfully convenient for you to say. You're the one that's going to be eating our food. There's a, a bird in the bird in the hand is worth it's worth two in the bush right so like would you rather have one loaf of bread now or the vague promise that you'll have 10 loaves of bread if you give that one loaf of bread away to a perfect stranger the widow says i trust god i trust elijah so much so that i'm going to put my life into their hands i'm going to entrust myself to them. I'm going to entrust the life of my child to them. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to honor Elijah's request, even though it's entirely possible that doing so might mean that I die. Doing so might mean that I bury my kid. At the end of the day, the question that she's wrestling with is, who do I trust more? Do I trust God who tells me to do this thing that everything in me says is suicide, or do I trust myself? And all of the wisdom and experiences that I've accrued that that tell me not to do what God... When God calls you to do something radical, something outrageous, something that seems dangerous, something that seems foolish, everything in you is screaming... Don't do it. It doesn't make sense. It'll do more harm than good. You're smarter than that. You're better than that. Figure it out. Do what you know is right. Your best option is to follow your, follow your gut and follow your instincts. Right? The widow at Zarephath is, saying, is showing us that it's better to trust God and obey Him, even when it seems foolish, even when it seems outrageous, than it is to trust yourself. God has called me to share the gospel with my neighbor. 
All right, fine. But if I do, maybe they'll think I'm stupid. Maybe they'll think I'm a jerk. Maybe they'll think I'm pushy or insensitive. So maybe I should not do what God's called me to do because I know a better way. I have a better way to to do it. God has called me to give generously to support the ministry of the gospel. But I'm convinced that if I do, then I won't have enough money to live the life that I want to live. I won't be as secure and as comfortable as I feel that I should be. So maybe instead of obeying God, I'll do what I want to, to do. God has called me to love and invest in the fellow believers in my life. But frankly, it's too hard. I don't have the time. I don't have the emotional bandwidth to rejoice with everyone else with every little thing that they rejoice in or to mourn with everyone else with every little thing that they, that they mourn. I've got my own issues. I've got my own problems. So, so how about I just disregard this command of God and do what I think is right, do what I think is better. On, on any given day, you and I have countless opportunities like this widow to do what God has called you to do, even though it seems foolish, even though it seems outrageous, even though it seems counterintuitive, or opportunities to disobey God and do what we want to do and look out for ourselves because we are more important than anyone else. It takes faith to obey God. It takes faith to to obey God when it's costly. It takes faith to trust that God will provide for you. Oftentimes, obeying God means putting yourself in a position where your only hope is that God will provide for you. That's what happened with this widow. So she feeds Elijah. God provides for her. And then Elijah moves in and crashes with him. Hey, You and me and your kid, we're all going to hang out and eat together from this supernatural miracle uh, flour and oil that God is replenishing for us. And that's kind of of where they're at until verse 17, sometime later. The son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became, uh, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So her child, the very child that she said, hey, don't make me give you this bread because this bread is all that me and my son have left. We're going to go home and eat it and then die. And he said, no, go ahead and give it to me. And she's saying, please don't make me do that because the one thing that I don't want to happen is that I don't want my son to die. Right? Anything, ideally, if we could find some way that doesn't involve my son dying, I'd like to do that. And they find a way that, that, that the son doesn't die. Well, then the son dies. which is particularly bad news for this widow, right? uh, Having a son die would be terrible, devastating news for anyone at any time ever. But if you're a widow in ancient Israel and you had one son and that son dies, it's even worse. Because not only are you devastated that you have to bury your child, but that one son was also your singular hope for stability and livelihood in your old age. They didn't have retirement plans. They didn't have social security. They had had kids. That was your your retirement plan was your kids and specifically your your male kids, right? When you'd have a a son in the ancient world, the deal, the, the tacit deal that would kind of be struck between every parent and every child was, I'll look after you feed you, protect you, change your diapers for the first few years of your life, and then you look after me and feed me and change my diapers for the last few years of my life, right? That's kind of the, that's kind of the social contract that was built into, the, you, you, your kid is born and you know intrinsically if I don't take care of this kid for the first 5, 10, 15 years of their life, they'll die. And you also know if my kid doesn't take care of me for the last 5, 10, 15 years of my life, I will die. And that was kind of baked into their, to their framework. And so if you are a widow that has no husband, no means of support, your only means of support is your son, and then that son dies, you're not only dealing with the grief of burying your child, you're also dealing with the anxiety and fear of, of you know, getting closer to old age and having nothing. No resources, no family, no safety net, no way to survive at all. And that's what this widow is staring at and wrestling with. 
And she said to Elijah, verse 18, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You've come to bring my sin to remembrance. So she's mad. She's complaining. She's venting. But even built into her venting, even built into her frustration, is an acknowledgement of culpability, an acknowledgement of this situation that I'm in is on, is on me, my, my own sin is contributed. Right? Like if, anyone, if there would ever be anyone in the history of humanity who could you know, be in a position to call foul, claim victim status, woe is me, I don't deserve this, this isn't fair, this isn't my fault, this is your fault, then this widow would be the person who could do that. And yet she is, is readily acknowledging that I have some share of culpability here. This situation is happening. Not just because, I mean, the, in the next chapter, we're going to look at it next week, King Ahab, when he sees Elijah, he says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? King Ahab plays the victim status, the same card that the widow in Zarephath is not willing to play. He says, this is your fault. This predict- and of course, Elijah's like, I'm not the troubler of Israel. We'll see it next week, right? I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are- this drought happened because of you. Don't shoot the messenger. Like, if you rack up credit card bills, don't get mad at the person from the credit card company who calls and asks you to pay. That's all I am, right? We're, would the drought happen because of you and your idolatry, not because of me, but, but uh, Ahab is saying, it's not, it's not my fault, it's someone else's. The widow is saying, now I'm going to acknowledge that I deserve God's wrath and God's judgment. My sin in this moment has been brought to light and my child is dead, at least in part because of my sin. Verse 9, Elijah says to the widow, Give me your son. And he took him from her, and he carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him on his own bed, and he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself out upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. James 5 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective prayer works prayer 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 doesn't change who god is because he doesn't change prayer doesn't change god's will because god's will doesn't change but prayer changes us and conforms us to the will of god and prayer changes things here in this world there are things that that happen in this world that otherwise would not have happened that do happen because people pray for it prayer works elijah prays god hears his prayer and god restores the life of this boy verse 23 elijah took him took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber of the house and delivered him to his mother and said see your son lives and the woman said to elijah now i know that you are a man of god and that the word of the lord is that the word of the lord in your mouth is truth. God is God. His word is true. You are a man of God. The words that you say are true. The words that you attribute to God are words that God has really said, and they are words that are really true, right? This woman's response to this supernatural, not the first that she's seen, by the way, but, but the, the supernatural miracle of, of, you know, restoring the life of her child, her response is to Listen to God and trust in God and obey God and trust that what God says is right and true. That's the shape. That's the, that's the arc of the story of this widow of Zarephath. God speaks. God makes promises. 
God gives commands. She listens. She trusts. She obeys. Even when obedience is costly, even when obedience seems foolish, even when obedience goes against what every fiber in her being says that she should do, she listens and obeys. And then God provides. God gives food. God gives life. God gives. God saves. God restores. God takes care of her. God provides for a widow Gentile woman. Think for a second about the contrast between her and the other characters that we saw in the last few chapters. Nadab, Basha, Ela, Zimri, Omri, Ahab. These are, you know, these are the one, these are the, the one percenters. These are the top one percent of the top one percent, right? These are, these are the, the richest most attractive, most powerful, most successful, the tallest, best, well-to-do families, right? They, they, they've kind of climbed the ladder and attained the position of the king of it, the most powerful office in the land, and all of them to the man are rejected by God. And they receive judgment and punishment at the hand of God. They turn away from God. They worship other gods instead of the true God. They are far too impressed with themselves and who they are and everything that they have, and they are not nearly enough impressed with God. They are not nearly, they're not impressed enough to listen to God, to trust in God, to obey God. And these are the people that when you look, these are the people that you would think, you would assume These are the people in the entire nation that are the most likely to receive affirmation from God. They're smart, they're spiritual, they're rich, they're powerful, right? These are are the people that would be voted most likely to succeed, most likely to receive affirmation from God. And they're cast out. And this widow is about as far from them as you could possibly be. The daily prayer that Jewish men would pray was written, they all had a copy of it, and they would wake up in the morning and pray it. One of the parts of the daily prayer that Jewish men would pray is, God, I thank you for giving me this day, and I thank you for uh, not making me a slave or a Gentile or a woman. That was part of their daily prayers that they would just pray Because they were grateful that God had blessed them and not made them one of these second-class citizens that are slaves and Gentiles and and women. On the Venn diagram of like where you have to be and what you have to be to be successful, to be up like she's not even on the Venn diagram at all. She's she checks all the boxes of if you're this then there's no way that God could ever love you, no way that God could ever bless you, no way that you could ever receive affirmation from God. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus points to the fact of, of just how unlikely it is that this woman receives love, grace, blessing, and affirmation from God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 25, he says... But I tell you the truth, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three and a half years and a great famine came over the entire land. And Elijah was not sent to any of them, but only to the widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Jesus says there are, there are, there are countless widows that would be in line in front of this widow from Zarephath. But Jesus is saying, God does not distribute his blessings. God does not distribute his affirmation based on the people who appear most likely to be eligible for it. 
He doesn't dispense his blessings and his affirmation based on those people who appear most likely to deserve it. God doesn't bless people because they're rich and powerful and successful and influential. He doesn't do it because they're big and strong and they've climbed the ladder of success. If that's why God blessed people, God would have blessed every king in the nation of Israel and God would have disregarded the widow of Zarephath. He wouldn't have cared about her at all. not why God blesses people, and that's not why God saves people. God saves people because they are humble and because they trust in Him. Because like the widow of Zarephath and and unlike the kings of Israel, God saves people because they look within themselves and they realize, I am not good enough. I am not smart enough. I am not spiritual enough. I'm not righteous enough. I need someone else other than me. I need something else other than me. And they look away from themselves and they look to God and they take God at his word and they lean on God and they hold fast to God and then they, they, they manifest that leaning and that holding fastness by obeying God even when obedience is costly and scary and, and dangerous. That's why God saves people. Friends, one day you are going to stand before the God who made you and you're going to give an account for the life that you lived and you're going to speak to why God should welcome you into his presence. In that moment, you can take one of two postures, right? You can take the posture you can take the, the posture of the Israelite kings, the, the way of the world. I am impressive, I am strong, I am righteous, I am rich. Look at everything that I have done. Look at look at all my qualifications and all of my resources. God, you should welcome me into your presence because of who I am and because of what I have done. And if you do that, God will reject you and cast you out of his presence forever. Just like he did the wicked kings of Israel. Or you can take a different posture. Right? You can take the posture of the widow of Zarephath, the way of the gospel, listening to the word of God, believing that the word of God is true, believing that when God makes a promise that he will follow through on it and acting as if the promises of God are true, obeying them even when it is costly, even when it is counterintuitive. Right? As hard as it was for the widow of Zarephath to give her the last bit of her bread to Elijah and hope, beyond hope, that God would provide for her, that's nothing compared to what it takes for a Christian to stand before their creator and entrust themselves to his mercy based on the person and work of Jesus. Think about how absurd, think about how ridiculous and absurd a Christian is. How absurd you you have to be to to, to be a Christian. You, you, You stand before God. Eternity hangs in the balance. Not 50 years, not 100 years, not a thousand. Eternity itself hangs in the balance. You've lived a long life. You've amassed a whole bunch of accomplishments. You've acquired a lot of things. You've got a pretty good portfolio in your hand that you can lean on, that you can appeal to for why God should accept you and welcome you. Or you can put all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your faith in a a dead man. A man who, a, a, a carpenter turned itinerant preacher who was killed, publicly humiliated on a cross. Right? Rome did that. Right? The, Jesus was crucified publicly as a spectacle so that they, would, they were saying, this man lost. He didn't win. He lost. He's dead 
And anyone who identifies with him, anyone who has anything to do with him, is a loser just like he was, and they're dead too. If you follow him, if you trust in him, if you identify with him, you'll end up dead just like he did. So go find some other way. And Christians are people who say, yeah, I'm going to follow that guy. I'm going to, I'll have what he's having. I'll identify with that guy. My chances are better when I stand before God of, of having God you know, accept me on the, on the basis of that man who was crucified than on my own life and my own righteousness. Friends, that is absurd. That is insane. You'd have to be a fool to do that. According to the economy of the world. This widow had one meal left. It was all that she had. And the offer on the table was, give that meal to someone else. That's stupid. That's foolish. You don't do that. Jesus said, whoever loves his life and grasps tightly to his life and tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This woman did the thing that the world was screaming at her, don't do it, it's foolish. She trusted God, she took God at his word, and then she found that God provided for her against all odds. And God is calling us to do that which the world is screaming is is foolish, of looking away from ourselves looking away from everything that we've accomplished, everything that we've accrued, and looking to Jesus and trusting in Jesus instead of ourselves. And trusting that Jesus will keep his promises and trusting that Jesus will save us and keep us. Friends, let's be a church family who rejects the way of the world that tells us to trust in ourselves Let's be a family who trusts in Christ together, walks with Christ together, and obeys the word of God together, even when it is costly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would save us from the folly and sin of these kings of Israel who worship other gods besides you. Please save us from that. Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us a heart of faith like this widow. Help us to hear your word, believe your promises, believe that you will keep them, and then help us to trust you and obey you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.